Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do indeed praise you as we have sung and confessed and prayed. You alone are deserving of worship and adoration. Thank you for what you provide us in material possessions. And so, Father, we give back a portion in honor and as worship and adoration of you. Take these gifts, use them to extend your kingdom, to care and comfort your people, and to glorify your name. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, if you would remain standing, uh, we're uh, thankful to have uh, Dr. Michael Allen come and uh, fill our pulpit again. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 3, beginning with verse 7 and reading through chapter 4, verse 13. Hear God's word. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please join me as we pray and ask God to illumine our time in his word. Father, we thank you for these words. You spoke to your people of old in the wilderness, and you spoke to Israel through David, your king, and you spoke through this anonymous apostle addressing this congregation of the Hebrews, and we trust that now you will speak to us. We ask that you would speak to us of Jesus. We ask that you would speak to us of grace. We ask that you would speak to us of freedom. We ask that you would speak to us of peace. For we have had enough of death, and we have had enough of bondage, and we have had enough of hopelessness, and we have had enough of ourselves. And so we pray that you would come and speak. This we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Um, This morning as we look at this passage, I want to put before you One story, two principles, and three prompts. And if that sounds like I'm sneaking in six points, I promise I'm not. One story, two principles, and three prompts that are found here in this passage and that speak to the significance of ending well. More of that in just a minute. Let's begin with the story, for that's where our passage begins. You'll notice in verse 7... More likely than not, that your Bible is indented because we have a lengthy biblical quotation appearing here. And this author is referring back to a portion of Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is one of those psalms that recounts the history of Israel at some length, praising God and interceding for Israel before that God in light of the stories of old, in light of who God has been, in light of their need, in light of their deliverance received in the past, asking for new, fresh grace today. But it tells a story. It refers to a generation and to an episode that most families would simply leave in the closet. But David didn't, and this author didn't, and I would encourage you to be committed not to either. It tells a sad story. But it doesn't begin bad. It begins well in a certain strange sense. God's people, having been brought to Egypt, having been freed from famine through this remarkable providence where God has brought one of their own into a position of power such that he can bless them, such that he can provide for them, God's people then fall into slavery to that Egyptian people and for over 400 years are mistreated. For the pharaohs didn't remember Joseph. They didn't remember the favor that was to be shown to the Israelites. And Exodus 1 and 2 tell us that God's people are serving this pharaoh. They're toiling. They're being oppressed. They're being overworked. They're treated as less than human, as if they bear no dignity. And we read there in Exodus 2 that God's people cry out to the Lord. That's a good beginning in the face of difficulty, isn't it? Not simply to stomp your feet, not to throw a pity party, not simply to wail out in frustration, but to call upon the Lord, to direct one's prayers and intercessions to the only place that matters, 
And so the story begins well. And we're told there that God hears their cry, he sees their plight, he comes down and he intervenes. And that that takes the form, of course, of God famously commissioning Moses at the burning bush and sending him out to address Pharaoh and through that cycle of ten plagues, eventually leading Pharaoh to capitulate and to let God's people go. But that proves not to be enough because three days later, as they're journeying off in the wilderness, of course led by a a cloud of fire, protected by God, going through the desert, a place of great uncertainty, of great difficulty. Pharaoh thinks better of his earlier decision and sends the troops after them to retrieve his slaves. And you'll remember the episode. It's, It's made it to the movies a couple of times. The cloud blocks the army, but the people are still stuck up against a sea. And so, of course, the sea opens up in front of them. And here again, we see a remarkable act on the behalf of the people. I often think about this as one who's grown up in South Florida, south even of here, whether I would be willing to stroll out if suddenly I saw the Atlantic Ocean opened up and a dry path all the way to Grand Bahama Island. (laughs) Would I venture off? looking up to the left and to the right, staring at that water and happily meandering across to go to the paradise on the other side. I'd like to think that if I'd been led out of Egypt by a cloud of fire and God had told me to go, that I would go, but I nonetheless realize it's a remarkable act of faith and trust. That's a strange thing. And you are putting your life in the hands of the one who holds back those waters. As we see, for when the Egyptians followed, God judged them, and they were killed. And we see, of course, on the other side, the Israelites respond in the only way that makes sense. They praise God. We have that remarkable song in Exodus 15, but just before it, we find out it's not simply a single woman, Miriam, singing praise of the Lord, but all the people, Exodus 14.31 tells us, believed God and trusted his servant Moses. This is a really good start. I mean, as far as new peoples go, new countries, new civilizations, this is pretty fresh and exciting and good, but you know the end of the story, and it doesn't end well. For when God's there giving them their constitution atop Mount Sinai, the people are at the bottom getting into trouble, aren't they? Worshiping God with that golden calf calling down God's judgment, then and there, even as he's providing for him in the most profound of ways. And if we read on, of course, to the book of Numbers, the passage, this passage is referring back to the wilderness generation, we find seven sins, seven occasions described in Numbers. A a biblical number speaking of completeness or wholeness, just as in seven days God could order this entire beautiful world for his purposes, so these seven sins show the beauty of God's people crashing down as time after time after time they murmur and they disobey. And here, we're reminded it does not end well. It comes to a head, of course, in Numbers 13 and 14 when they're told finally to cross 
the river and to take the promised land, and they refuse because they're intimidated by those on the other side, and they don't believe God's pledge that he'll give them victory. And they say, if we go and attack, our women and children will be killed. We will be killed. Better to go back to Egypt, to slavery. Let's do that. And God responds with poetic justice, saying that you will be killed, and only your children you claim to worry about. Only they will make it into the promised land. And our text here reminds us of God being provoked with that generation, according to verse 9, and swearing, according to verse 11, in his wrath, that they will not enter his rest. They will not enter his blessing, the promised land. We see there in Numbers 14, and we see it highlighted in Deuteronomy 1, where the story is retold at the end of the chapter, and we see it highlighted here again in verse 19, that amidst all the many screw-ups and all the ways this goes bad, bad communication, bad decision-making, bad strategic thought, bad theological belief, bad moral choices, at the root of all of it is one problem. Verse 19 puts it this way. We see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They did not trust the Lord. They did not entrust themselves. They did not entrust their families. They did not entrust their children They did not entrust their livelihood. They did not entrust their future to the Lord. Not in the way that they had when they walked through that path through the Red Sea. No, they no longer trusted the Lord. And so they were unable to enter his rest. It's a story with a good beginning, but an absolutely terrible ending. It's like a good meal that leaves you with a stomach ache, right? It's like an occasion where you go on a date or you meet a new friend and it begins so promising and then you quickly start checking your watch, right? Beginnings are wonderful, but endings are what matter. And here we see a tragedy of profound proportions, And if you're anything like me, whether you're young or you're old and already entering this phase, you're thinking about what it means to end well before the Lord. It may be something approaching soon for natural reasons. It may be something that could come at any moment in time because of the accidents of life. It could be something that you think is years away. But endings matter. And the story reminds us of how they can take a tragic turn. Well, there's the story. Let's consider the two principles that are drawn out here. The first, I think, we see in chapter 3, verse 12, most pointedly. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Notice the word used to address the audience, the congregation, brothers. This is not a word to the pagans across the street. 
This is not a word to the passerby with no relation to the church. This is a word to the person within the people of God. The brother or the sister in Christ. Take care or take heed. Be watchful. Be alert, right? Caution. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 14 picks up the theme. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You know, there are a lot of people who sell Christianity of different sorts, suggesting that you need to move up or bump up. You need to graduate from some sort of elementary status to some sort of second level of citizenship. It may be attaining some prophetic gift of of speech or of tongues. It may be by attaining some level of moral superiority. It may be by giving your life away in some vocational calling, whether it's as a, a clergy member or a missionary overseas. This text speaks of none of that. God demands one thing. And it's the same thing he's demanded originally. Right? Verse 14 says... God wants our original confidence to be firm to the end. That's not the confidence of personal, individual swagger. It's not a matter of you maintaining your backbone and your ability to keep your chin up because you know how to weather life. You know how to think things through. You know how to push on to the end. It's rather the original confidence you place in God. It's directed outside of you to the one who's provided, to the one who's called, to the one who's gifted, to the one who has done so much in giving birth to you as a brother or a sister in the family, maintaining that confidence that he might continue to be an everlasting father, one who cares and provides, and as we attested earlier, preserves us with such power and grace and mercy. But it's absolutely crucial to observe that here and elsewhere in the Bible, the saving faith that we speak of is, by definition, a persevering faith. Biblical faith, saving faith, faith that unites you to Jesus Christ is persevering faith. And there are imposters out there. There are those, like the Israelites of old, who believe for a time and who fall away from the living God not to enter his rest. That's the first principle, that biblical faith, saving faith, is persevering faith. The second principle, I think, requires us to look at where this idea comes from. You may remember Jesus, early in his ministry, is teaching his disciples And he does this early because he wants them to know what to make of all they're about to observe from his public ministry. Because there are going to be people who come and love him for a while and leave him, bored, on to the next big thing, whatever the next religious bestseller at the Barnes & Noble of the day might be. There are going to be those who love him and in the end call for his death because he will have disillusioned them. He will have failed to validate their desires. He will have confronted them at some point, and they just won't have it. 
but there will be others who, like him, will eventually go to the cross in faith, in witness to him. And so he tells a parable of the sower. You may remember it. It appears in a number of the gospel accounts, but I want to read just a few verses from the gospel according to Mark chapter 4. And Mark tells it in this way. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he's asked a few verses later by his disciples to explain this teaching. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 14. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that's sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They're those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Brothers, if you're here and if you're a part of the congregation, then the second, third, and fourth soils are the crucial ones to keep in mind and to be watchful of. You want to be a good soil. You want there to be a harvest. You want to bring honor to God and you want to enjoy his eternal goodness yourself. And notice the second principle we see is that there are two ways people of faith leave the faith. Through attack or through allurement. Notice the second group Those who have no root, when tribulations come, when times are hard, when they are attacked by the difficulties of life, their faith doesn't bear up because it has no root. It doesn't have a deep-seated sense of God's abiding goodness, of his power, of his provision, of his commitment to them personally. And so whatever tragedy it may be, whatever besetting sin it may be, whatever skeptical doubt or idea it may be, faith can be attacked. But faith can also be allured. 
by the deceitfulness of sin and by the things of this world. And as Jesus describes that third group, he describes folks who don't necessarily go through any tragedy or lose heart because of a, an inability to make any progress over indwelling sin. No, it's, it's rather simply that they are bored with the faith. They, their hearts grow warm for something else. The treasures of the world. The comforts of simply going the way of the culture. The peace of no longer being at war with your inner evil old self, but just of affirming it and going along. Now, the second principle we see here is that faith can be undermined by attack or by allure. Well, in light of that, if we want to be people, as we're told to be here, as we're called and encouraged to be here, if we want to be people who hold our trust firm to the end. If we want to be Peter and not Judas, right? If we want to be Moses and not those Israelites who murmured. If we want to be people who end well, what prompts does the text give us? And I want to suggest three. First, Chapter 3, verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, no one sins out of duty. I don't break the rules because I have to. I break the rules because at some point they seem to lead to an appealing, enticing, promising path. But that's deceitful. And you know what? I don't always see it. Sometimes I see it, and I'm just stubborn in my sin. But more often than not, I don't see it. And that's why God gave me a wife, right? That's why you have a neighbor or a sibling or a spouse. That's why you have one another. To point out the deceitfulness of sin, to exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, right? One of those glorious truths, it's, it's going to keep being called today, right? It's, it's the command, the timing of which keeps on keeping on, as it were. Continue to lift one another up. Chapter 10 will return to this idea when it talks about the, the pressures this congregation apparently was under as some were persecuted and sent to prison and others sought to care for them. And that, of course, makes things dicey and it makes faith hard and it, it brings about anxiety and fear and worry. And so naturally, people would, would begin to wonder, isn't there an easier way? Would God really call us to, to that kind of sacrifice, to that measure of difficulty? And we start justifying things in our head and we start thinking through how there must be a better way and that's deceit but it's so easy to get deceived on your own right think of all the stupid ideas out there in the internet because somebody's sitting in a room by themselves just typing away right but when we're forced to go talk to somebody not simply to type it under your computer, but to go actually look somebody in the eye 
and speak it to them. So often, the foolish fades away. And the real is reoriented for us. And so the first thing we're prompted to here is community exhortation and encouragement. That we're in this together. It takes a church not just to make a Christian, but to sustain a Christian. Because that's how Jesus cares for us. Secondly, we see here in the first few verses of chapter 4, this emphasis on the Sabbath. Right? This reminder of God's Sabbath rest that is still ours to enter into. And it's very clear that the Sabbath rest isn't ultimately about earthly blessing, whether it's reprieve from work or having a fruitful land. It makes very clear that even when Israel was living a posh life after David had brought peace, they're they're in the promised land and and there's still dicey political circumstances with neighboring uh, parties and nations, but eventually David brings peace for a time. And even then, Psalm 95 tells us, a rest still awaits. We We haven't received our final blessing yet. We have to look ahead to something greater, to something larger. And the Sabbath is a sign and a symbol of that, that we're not satisfied with the the mundane and the everyday, but that we long for God to provide in a new way. But the Sabbath isn't just a sign of of what we'll receive. If we're honest, the, the Sabbath is like exercise, isn't it? You know, in the ancient world, of course, they're... They're living in an agrarian society. And I didn't grow up on a farm, but I know enough people who have. And from what I gather, you don't typically leave things alone for 24-hour periods. Right? That goes a little odd. And so the command to set apart a day unto the Lord to be holy and to do no work is a remarkable act of trust. If there is not a God who is powerful, all-powerful, and if there's not a God who's really your father and committed to your good, then that's madness. Right? But if there is a God, the kind of God who brings people out of slavery in Egypt, and the kind of God who kills his son and raises him again from the dead on our behalf, if, if that kind of God is real and is ours, then it's the most natural thing in the world to trust him, and to take our hands off the wheel again, one day in seven, to step back. And if you're anything like me, it involves sacrifice, to not throw yourself into your work, into your tasks, to trust that the Lord's six, as a friend of mine, are better than my seven. It's a weekly challenge unto the Lord to provide as we're reminded by his prophets of old. And so the second prompt we're given here, if we want to sustain our faith, is to provide weekly occasions for God to feed and fuel our faith by putting him to the test, by taking our hands off the wheel and seeing if he doesn't provide, seeing if he doesn't sustain, if he doesn't give peace and joy and provision of every sort even as we rest and cast our cares upon him. And so the first prompt we're given to sustain 
a saving, persevering faith is to exhort one another and to, to not hesitate to gather to do so every day. And the second prompt we're given is to set apart that Sabbath day and to enter into it, using it as a weekly occasion to entrust ourselves and our future to God and seeing Him provide. And of course, as you see somebody provide, they, they become so much more trustworthy, right? Right? And as they become more trustworthy, it becomes so much more natural, intuitive, spontaneous, and obvious to trust them. And so the Sabbath fuels and feeds our faith. But there's a third prompt, a third reminder in chapter 4, verse 11, where we're told, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And it's, it's crucial to remember that we are called to something that may sound paradoxical at first, to strive to enter rest. That, that, that seems odd, right? But you've got to use language of that sort because rest is just so strange for human beings. I don't know about you, but it normally takes me when I'm seeking to decompress and and actually rest, when I'm seeking vacation, it takes a couple days actually to unwind, right? And for equilibrium to set in before I can actually even begin to recharge. Because I am so wired, I am so habituated. I am so personally and culturally inclined to want to do and to make and to strategize and to follow through and to provide in all sorts of ways. I don't always pull it off, but I believe that's the calling and the aspiration. And when I don't pull it off, I feel guilty or frustrated over it. And when I do, I, 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 I call it a success. Rest is so counterintuitive for us, isn't it? So much so that you've got to speak of striving to rest. Of intentional pursuit of allowing another person to hold you up. Of taking your hands off the wheel. Faith is remarkably countercultural. You know, if you study Christianity amongst the other religions, and we could expand that to philosophies and ethical systems, it is unique in the place in which it puts faith. No other religion exalts faith. In fact, even the Jewish religion today doesn't speak of faith in anything like the way Christians do. And that's our nearest neighbor. Other religions have gods, by and large, who are pretty straightforward in terms of their demands. They want your money. They want your adoration. You consider the gods of old, of mythic Greece and Rome. They want your sons for war. They want your virgin daughters. They want your adoration and praise, right? They never want faith. And yet the gospel 
tells us as we're reminded when we receive Holy Communion that God wants none of that. God's not after your money or your food or your drink or your children or your armies. Rather, Christianity is about the gifts of God being given for the people of God, from God, graciously, through Christ. And faith is the only condition, that original confidence that God requires to the very end. And faith is a strange thing. Think about the faith you exercise at this very moment. You sit in a chair, and I hope there's no traumatic event in church history that I'm unaware of that this will cue up, but you sit here unthinking about the fact that you're, you're hovering 24 to 30 inches above the floor. And until I mention it now, I imagine, unless there's been an occurrence in the past, that you're not worried about your bottom or your back hitting the deck. You just sit. You trust the chair, right? You're exercising faith. I have seen chairs fall apart. I have seen people hit the deck. It's embarrassing. It's potentially painful, right? But here you are, people of faith, entrusting yourselves to the chair, right? Now, at the end of the service, you're not going to get a blue ribbon for the exercise of your faith and trust. But I do imagine a few years from now, when these chairs are worn out, and they need to be replaced, assuming no one's chair has broken and they've hit the deck, then when it's time to replace them and they've done well and proven dependable, you're going to go back to the same company. You're going to say, your chairs were trustworthy and we want more. Faith, unlike every other action you ever do, points away from yourself to its object. That's why God cares about it. Because unlike sacrificially providing for a God's needs, bringing the lambs, bringing the oxen, unlike triumphing in war against other nations on God's behalf to accrue land and and power for the gods, unlike giving your children to the gods to go serve them in all sorts of ways, God asks you to trust him from beginning to end, because God wants to provide for you from the beginning to the end. And God is well aware that you will get bored, or you will be attacked, or you will be deceived by other ways. And so God gives you this word, this story, these principles, these prompts, so that God can continue to be your father. And so you can continue to, like a child, depend upon him. So that you can be the good seed. That that's sown in good soil. Soil that embraces the seed. That receives it. That depends upon it. That, that it flourishes in and grows up and matures and maintains its original confidence to the very end. And flourishes 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Endings matter. And this text reminds us there is no greater ending than that between your earthly walk before your heavenly Lord. God doesn't want you to graduate to a second blessing. 
But God is insistent on you maintaining that original trust and confidence firm to the very end. And as a community, as brothers and sisters, an image of family, family who care, cradle to the grave for one another, that is our common calling. Let's pray and ask God's blessing as we seek to bear one another's burdens and encourage one another's faith. Father, we're yours and we confess that your love has compelled us and has called us, summoned us to identify with one another as brothers and sisters, as family of greater and deeper significance than our earthly origin, than our ethnic background, than our social place or standing. And we want to finish well. We want to be men and women and children of faith who continue to walk in trust and who never outgrow our love and desire for you. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, drive deep into our hearts that love, that captivation? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, drive deep into our wills those rhythms of grace that we might be fed and reminded of your goodness and your power as we exhort each other, as we mark the Sabbath day, and as we intentionally strive again and again to turn away from our work unto rest in you. Would you do these things that we might end well in this life so that we might enjoy eternity forevermore with you, with your angels and saints of old, with one another, and with all those whom we look and long for you to call into your kingdom. Would you do all that in Jesus' name? We pray. Amen. Well, now as we receive.